great to uh, be back with you this morning. I got to go on a trip to Brazil. I want to talk to you a little bit about that uh, today and how profoundly uh, humbling uh, some things ha that happened on that trip. But let's get started this morning by, by continuing our study in the book of James. But I want you to look at another passage of scripture first to kind of frame what we're going to read. So go to Ephesians chapter 4. And put a little finger in uh, James chapter 4. We're going to read two little short passages of scripture. Ephesians 4 and James 4. And I hope this, this first passage gives you a little bit of a contrast to what we're going to be talking about today. You guys ever get Ephesians 4? I should know where that is. There we go. All right. A little jet lag still. All right, so here we go, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It's amazing how James, when he introduces himself in his book, he says, I am James, a slave of the Lord Jesus, you know, his, his brother, and then he had a revelation that he truly was the resurrected Jesus. It changed his life, and he said, I'm a slave of Jesus. Here's Paul, the apostle, the greatest uh, theologian of all the scripture, saying, I am a prisoner of the Lord, and I beseech you to have a walk that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness. In fact, why don't we just read some of this together? Uh, let's, let's do that together, because I want these to sink in. Let's go. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And then in James chapter 4, I mean, I just wanted you to hear that because we all know that. We're supposed to love one another, bear with one another, be encouraging, be humble, be patient. We all know these things to be true. That's, that's just what it means to be uh, a part of the culture of Jesus. And then James comes along, I love it, because he just cuts to the chase. He says, this is, this is reality. This is where we live. No pulling any punches. And he says, what is it that causes then all this conflict that's going on in your lives? What causes the conflict? What's, what's going on that's inside of you that's causing the warring and the fighting? Don't they come from the desires that are in your own heart, that war inside of you, the parts of your body you lust you don't have, you murder and covet, you can't obtain, you fight and you war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, he says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself in God's sight, and he 
will lift you up. I just want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about the incredible power, the unstoppable power of humility. And maybe for this to really have some power and some traction in our lives, maybe think of the person that causes you the most conflict. All of us, somebody in this room needs to be lifted up today. Somebody needs to be encouraged and to be built up and you experience pressure and discord and conflict with one of the members of your family, your spouse, one of your children, that one person at work. And maybe God will speak a little more clearly today if you can get that person in mind right now. And God, speak to my heart because this needs to be resolved and it needs to be settled and we need to have peace. And may God give us the grace to change. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us today to hear you speak. I'm asking you to take control of what I would have to say today. I only want to say what you want, nothing more. May this be completely uh, your moment and your time. In Jesus' name, amen. Both the Apostle Paul and James are grappling with an attitude that they want to see become pervasive in the life of the church and pervasive in, in not only uh, you personally, but really in all of us. He's talking about this, he's talking about humility, that there would be a culture or a, or a, a, a behavior or, or just a, a known uh, DNA of us as a group of people, the body of Jesus as humility. He, he really is grappling and pushing us to say that that thing that's in your heart, the, like what we read in Ephesians chapter 4, that what's in your heart, what is unseen can become seen, that, that faith, the invisible, could really start becoming visible in our lives, that really some profound shifts and, and changes could be, could be made in us that would actually cause us to look like and act like and react like Jesus in every situation. He's talking about a culture of humility. I, I saw such a culture uh, this past week as I was able to be in the city of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Actually, the whole reason that I went to Brazil was an honor. I was asked to accompany the president of our movement of churches across the world called Converge Worldwide. It's an incredible movement of churches, and uh, particularly we were going to Brazil to celebrate perhaps one of the greatest moves of God of our century. Let me tell you the story. In 1911... Two men from Indiana, they lived in South Bend. They were pastors of a very small church. They co-pastored a little church. Gunnar Vingren and Daniel Byrd, two Swedish Baptist ministers. They were caught up in the revival that was sweeping across our nation at the turn of the century that began in Azusa Street, Los Angeles, and made its way to Chicago. And these men, as they sought after God, they went to these meetings and they prayed for, for more of the Spirit of God and more of His power and more of His filling. And God began to radically alter their lives. They had a hunger for God that was insatiable. And they gave themselves away fully, saying, God, you can have all of us, our whole lives, everything we give ourselves to you. And God began to speak, and they, the church began to gather together to pray, asking God for their purpose. There was a word of knowledge, a, 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 a sense, this is what God is saying to us that happened in one of those prayer meetings. And the word was, Daniel, Gunnar, you are to go to a place called Para. Para. They didn't know where Para was. Never heard of it before. 
They went to the local library and looked it up. And it was a province at the mouth of the Amazon River in Brazil. Neither one of them had ever heard of it before. They didn't speak Portuguese. In fact, uh, Gunnar Vingren had always imagined himself one day becoming a missionary to China. This was a total shift of direction. They were, after all, from a little church in South Bend, Indiana. But they decided to take another week and to fast and to pray and to see if this was a conf- there would be a confirmation that this truly was from the Lord. After a week of prayer, the church gathered back together again, and it was the unanimous uh, uh, belief in that body that God truly was calling Daniel Berg and Gunnar Vingren to leave everything behind and to go to Belém, Brazil, or Pará, the province of Pará, at the mouth of the Amazon River. They took up an offering, $90. And with that in hand, they left and they set out for New York, caught a ship going to the mouth of the Amazon. It took them 14 days. They arrived in Beiling, 1911. I walked up the very steps that they came up out of the river. They had not a clue, didn't know a person, didn't know a soul, didn't know what to say. Bought some mangoes, walked to a park bench and sat down. And there on this park bench that still exists today, they began to pray, God, give us Give us the ability to, to do whatever you call us here to do. Fill us with your spirit. We pray for the people of this city. Open the doors to us. What's so amazing is that 100 years later, we're there going to Brazil to celebrate the impact of the lives of these two men. There are now over 10 million believers in Brazil today that trace their spiritual lives to the coming of Daniel Berg and Gunnar Fingren. In the city of... In the city... It's amazing. In the city of Beling itself, there are over 500 churches. There's so many people, so many churches, they built their own convention center. They built a convention center so that when they all come together to worship the Lord, there's one place that they can go. There are avenues and streets and overpasses and buildings in the city named after Gunnar Vingren and Daniel Berg, these two Swedish guys from South Bend, Indiana. Two people that we, we actually went to the house where the first 19 people gathered. The first few people to believe in Jesus. A whole nation of people impacted because two people just said, God, you can have my life and use me any way you want. Fill us with your spirit and we'll say yes to you. Pretty humbling. Pretty awesome. Pretty powerful to think that God speaks to people that way. And pretty humbling to think, what if I really ask God to speak to me and would I say yes to him? So the next thing we did was we went downtown Rio de Janeiro to a place of uh, this city. Brazil is huge. It's like the size of the continental U.S. We flew another four hours to the Rio de Janeiro. Went downtown to an area of the city called the Crocodile. It's a place also known as Crackland. It's just a, it's a, one of the most hopeless places in the world. Uh, addicted, afflicted children, uh, adults, uh, men and women on the streets, um, completely addicted to crack. A place of gangs and violence and, and uh, death. And yet in the center of this neighborhood, the spiritual descendants of Gunnar Vingren and Daniel Berg have created a ministry. It's changing the neighborhood. That part of the neighborhood is called Christland, Christolongia. And there they feed 
the homeless, and the homeless come in in the morning early, the, the addicted, these guys, these women with, with absolutely hopelessness, no life. They hear worship music playing as they come into the morning. They're fed breakfast. They're given uh, an opportunity for a hot bath and for clean clothing. So we went there, and I was excited to see this, and I was amazed at the impact of these two guys and amazed at the ministry that I saw. And then they came over to us, and they said, you're here. You're going to work. We want to put you to work. That's what you came here for. And I said, absolutely, yes. I want to get involved. I want to give me something to do. And they said, the translator then said the next words, well, we need some people to bathe the men and bathe the women. Whoa. I mean, I'm all for saying yes to God, but don't ask me to do, I mean, that made me really uncomfortable, and I was thinking, well, there's no way I'm going to, and I immediately thought up of all, you know, how that, that robs them of their dignity, and I began to think of all of the excuses why I can't do this. Now, there was a little translation error. It wasn't actually physically bathing them. It was assisting in the process of helping them to their showers, but my surprise was still to come when they put some trimmers and some clippers in my hands, and they asked me if I would cut hair and shave these men for the day. I've never done that before. But with a little bit of instruction, I began to shave these men, their faces, and cut their hair as best I could. I've never, I can't, can't quite tell you what happened in me as, as how humbling that was. When, when do you ever touch the face and the head of another man? I mean, I could have talked to these guys for hours on the street trying to share about Christ to them. Wouldn't have paid any attention, but there's something about the power of, of, of touch and of love expressed and, and cleaning away, cutting off the dirt and the grime and the restoration of dignity that's actually occurring as the outside begins to get clean and a person starts to feel human again. That by the end of that moment, um, looking into the eyes of this uh, of another man, and my eyes are are connecting with his, and there's a spirit now that's shared between us, the spirit of God that's present. How can I pray for you? And there was such a powerful connection as a grown man after grown man would just start to cry and open up their heart and let the spirit of Jesus begin to minister to them. These men uh, come off the streets, the place is staffed by former addicts and former afflicted and former broken people who made the decision to turn their lives to Christ and they serve with incredible joy and with smiles on their faces. I saw a picture of what uh, the, the writers of these epistles were talking about, this culture of humility. I saw them serve in the name of Jesus. I saw them, I saw something that God would want for us and something that I experienced and I was humbled by my initial reaction. No, I don't want to be a part of that. I can't do that. There's something still inside of me. I, I, I was shocked by, by my own reaction to, to pressure. The second humbling thing that happened on this trip was just, just group travel. Do you like group travel? Does anybody really like that? My favorite words in the world are, come on, let's go. I want to go. The problem with group travel is, is you move at the speed of the slowest person. And it's incredibly frustrating. And I'm just dying. And, and, and I, I remember it many times thinking to myself, if, if there had only been better planning and there's something in me that wants to take charge and, you know, and just like, okay, let's sort this out. Let's make some decisions. Let's get all this 
you know, straightened out. And that frustration as you sit passively and I could feel something inside of me just coming up. And it's amazing in my world, you know, I've got my creature comforts. I'm good. I'm pretty calm. I'm, I'm pretty spiritual. Take away my cup of coffee in the morning three days in a row. Take away my bed and I'm sleeping on a hard piece of wood. Take away um, my control over the environment. Take away um, uh, my anticipation of like, what's going to happen next. I really don't know. And it's amazing how much the words of James start to speak to me in a totally different way than I would have shared them with you even two weeks ago. In fact, I've kind of put aside what I was going to share and just tell you that these words mean something different to me because when he talks about a murderous spirit, like the murderous heart, and he, he talks about adulterous, adulterers and ad adulteresses, I don't think I would have applied that to me. I think I would have just went, Pfft. he's talking about those sinners. And yet there's something in me that the longer I serve Jesus and the, long, the more I teach about him and about his word, there's this... There are these moments of reality that come every so often that make me realize how far I am from what I really teach. That if all that has to happen is just to strip away some of the normality of my life, some of the comforts that I pursue, um, some of the things that I think I need or the control that I want to take over or things that have to be done the way I want them to be done, well, you start to mess with that and suddenly... I find out I'm still very much in need of a Savior. In light of all that, I want to just read to you some of these verses again. And maybe you can try to look through my eyes this morning and see the gap between what I know and what I live. Where do, where do all these fights and these quarrels that happen with other people, where do they come from? Where does all this irritability come from? Does it just happen? No. Don't they come from your desires, the, 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 the desire for pleasure or for comfort or for your way or for what you think needs to happen? Uh, doesn't that happen from within you? You lust and you don't have. You murder and covet and can't obtain. <laughs> that spirit that wants to kill if I can't get my coffee in the morning. You fight and you war. You lust and you don't have. I'm convicted by these verses. I'm convicted that I don't pray nearly enough. I don't ask God to adapt me to his will nearly as much as I should because my default switch is, is not, not, not in the normal space. In normal space, I do pray. I pray for you all the time. In normal, in normal time, I'll, I'll sit quietly and, and, and worship the Lord. In, in normal situations, I'll have a soft heart for God. But it's in those moments of pressure or reactivity or when things feel a little out of control that my default switch isn't to just stop and to pray and to let the character of Christ take over and come out of me. I wish I prayed more. I know that what James is really saying here, what he's really trying to talk to us about is how, how much that prayerlessness or that, that coming to God in moments of, of, God, I don't know what to do, that, that, that lack of responsiveness to God in those moments is really an evidence of pride in, in a strange way. 
Why? Because I don't really need God in those moments. I'll just power up and, and take over or, or begin to handle or talk to a bunch of people and get, get them to all get in on my side or whatever it is that we do. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying this morning? Does this feel in any way similar to what happens when we encounter pressure? Even though I know that God has said, and I would believe it with all of my heart, my God shall supply all of your needs. I'll take care of everything. All your needs. I've got them. I got you covered. Yes, but I still feel that need to control things. Maybe that's true for you. Maybe you don't pray. Maybe you don't. Maybe you argue or you manipulate or you angle. James says, maybe you don't ask God like you should. James says, maybe you ask God, but you ask amiss. He talks about asking amiss that we can just, you know, spend it on our own pleasures. In other words, God, I'm really, I mean... I don't really ask you because I know that really what I'm after is just more comforts for my life, more comforts. You know, I'm really not asking you to bless me so that I can be a blessing to others. It's, it's a spirit of self. And, and what James and what, what, what I think Paul are coming together to say is I'm looking for a culture, a pervasive culture of humility. That every once in a while God will interrupt your life with a string of coincidences or God incidences to let you know that for all the progress you've made and for however spiritual you think you are, um, you are desperately in need of his character and his, uh, his spiritual alteration of your personality. Am I making sense to you this morning? I wanna talk about just the incredible power that comes from humility. Because the Bible, uh, James gives us this amazing idea that God gives grace to the humble. That humble yourself before God and he'll lift you up. He gives grace to the humble. What good news that is. You know what grace is? Grace is power to change. Grace is the power to be different. But the only people who get that power are people who just stop and say, God, whoa, I can't do this. I'm unable to have, I'm unable to respond. God, I submit to you. Look at the progression of steps that James lays out for us. If we're to have this power to change, this power to become the functioning body of Jesus. Again, I remind you that James isn't just talking to you. He's talking to us. He's talking to the we and who we're really supposed to become. Watch as he walks us through a series of culture, um, culture components that we need to have. Number one, he says, submit yourself to God. There's that word again. Submit yourself to God. Fully say, like those two guys, what if we really said, God, you can have my whole life. I mean, I really put everything on the line. What if, your, what if you and I were so humble before God that he really could tell us anything? What would actually happen if we really were humble? What would happen if we really uh, served people out of love? What if we really served people without any need for recognition, no affirmation, no need for validation? What if we actually just were humble? Not that sort of fake Christian humility that, oh, yes, thank you very much. No, not that. I mean like real just, I, I will serve you, Lord, because I love you, and that's enough. I'll serve you because you asked me to serve you. I'll serve the poor in your name. I'll, I'll give up what I have. That's why he talks about this adulterous spirit because there's really this two-timing heart in me and maybe you recognize it in yourself, which is, God, I want all of you and, man, I really want, you know, my life as it is and the comforts I'm trying to achieve. 
You know, he says, you can't have, both, have it both ways. I mean, what if, what if we uh, really became truly a humble community? Submit yourself to God. And in that, we find out that the real conflicts that we have are really happening because we're, we're the ones in charge. That the conflict that we experience with others is really a war that's going on inside of us. Who's in charge? I mean, I get upset. I get irritable if things just don't go the way that I want them to go, right? It's the same way. That's why, that's why Paul would say in Colossians 3, he would say, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let, it, let God's peace rule you. So submit to him. Let him be in charge. And his peace will come and take, just, just level you out. And when you have the peace of Christ on the inside, we will have no need to have to manipulate others, to control, to try to be in charge. We'll actually begin to see the interruptions and the pauses and the delays and the barriers as, okay, God, what are you doing? Where are you taking me? How are you adapting me to your, to your will? Give in to God. This is where we really learn practically in the pressures of life. God, not my will, but yours be done. The second thing he says is resist the devil. There's actually a devil. There's actually an enemy that is opposing the work of God in you. In fact, anytime you hear a voice that agrees with the pride that's in your heart, especially wounded pride, that, that, that voice that says, they can't talk to me like that. Like, who are they to say this to me? Why, what should I have to, you know, and that, that voice that just encourages that, that prideful or that resisting heart. You got to recognize that there is a voice that's talking to you all the time. You will hear in your mind words that pride loves to hear. And you got to be aware of that. The enemy says if you'll be aware, or Jesus said if you'll be aware that there's an enemy, you'll, you'll actually try to resist him. Well, how do I resist him? The word of God is the truth, and the truth of God resists the lie. You got to have God's word in you for the critical moments. I, I think of this verse in Luke chapter 6 that's so powerful to me. Uh, all through this last year, that even God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So you be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. God has defined for me a behavior. And so, yeah, it's evil. Yeah, it's ungrateful. But you be merciful. That's how I want you to act. And amazing how when the word of God comes up, the lie is just seen as the lie and the enemy flees. Resist the enemy, and he'll flee from you. The Bible says in order that Satan might not outwit us, we're not unaware of his schemes. He comes to us to lie to us. So we have to give him control, and we've got to resist the enemy. And number three, then start drawing near to God. Draw near to God. The more you put aside religion and simply say, God, draw me close to you. God, draw my heart to yours. God, I will make time so that your personality can become my personality. I don't know about you, but I have a personality, a natural personality that must be altered by Christ. My natural personality is not at all like the personality of Jesus. So to the degree that I'm drawing near to him, he is changing me and adapting me to become like him. And so the conflict in my life is directly proportional to the time that I'm spending 
letting Christ adapt me and shape me. And the great, great promise of this verse is that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. He won't reject you or, or, or withhold some kind of, uh, you know, like a, like a parent who's, who's maladjusted, who wants to make you work for it. I mean, he'll just, you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And your heart will get soft and God will start to shape you and adapt you and, and do something great inside of you. My, uh, my, my default personality is to be busy and to run and to try to fit extra things into my day to accomplish. It's so important to me for some reason. And so I have to repent of that prayerless um, default spirit. And I, I repent to that to you as your pastor. I mean, I, I, don't pray, I don't pray as I should. I mean, I pray, but I should be praying more. I'm sorry for that. Draw close to God and he will draw near to you. And then um, ask for forgiveness. I love verse 8 where he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking about, you know, the hands represent action. And the, uh, the heart is an attitude change. God, you know, I'm sorry. Go to God and just admit it. Admit your need for him. When was the last time you actually mourned or were sad or did some of the things he said? Like, God, I, I, I'm sorry for, for just pursuing me and my agenda and my little, my two-timing heart. I'm pursuing materialism like every other American. I, I'm just pursuing it. God, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to be a little sad with you for a little bit. I'm going to let you speak to me. That's all James is saying. It's a good kind of sorrow, a, a fear of the Lord kind of moment where you say, oh, what is the matter with me, God? Do you understand, you understand what I'm saying? Just go to God and just admit it. And it's amazing. When we finally get real with God, I mean, the pressure begins to lift, and you start to live in the tension. And it's okay to live in the tension. I mean, listen, there's nothing I wanted to do more than not talk to you this morning. Because when, you, when, you, when you're confronted with, you know, I mean, as one who would teach and stand up here and say, this is, this is the word of the Lord, I don't really feel like that today. I would much rather just go find a little hole and be quiet and kind of let God do some work in me. But we can live in the tension. We can live in the tension of not being all that we should, but saying, at least, I'm, at least God, you're doing some work in me. Continue to do that. Keep moving me forward. Keep letting me say yes to you. Just, just respond in honesty. And not just to him, but to other people. I mean, the Bible says forgive, so, so don't hang on to an unforgiving spirit. Forgive others. I mean, they might be 95% wrong, and you're 5% wrong. So, you know what? Just own your 5%. Just really, just don't, and don't wait for them to own the 95%. Do, you be obedient to God and just own the 5%. And if you really are being led by the Spirit, you will trust him for the 95. God, that's in your hands. But I will, I will forgive. I, I, will, I will make that call. I'll humble myself. You see, here's the secret of this all. God does not want you down in the dirt, um, you know, groveling like some, you know, beat up kid of his. He, he says, humble yourself before God and he will lift you up. There's nothing like just coming clean before God and coming clean before others and watch God begin to lift you up. Don't buy into the lie that people won't respect you when you're honest. People will respect you 
when you just simply say what's true and humble yourself before him. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? I'm out of time. But I want to tell you a little, one more story, and then I'll be done. One of the things that happened while we were there uh, was our president of our churches all over the world, wonderful, incredible leader named Dr. Jerry Shevland. We were in a chapel service together with the leaders of the Assemblies of God of Brazil, and here Dr. Shevland coming from this Baptist, the descendants of the Baptists that Gunnar Vingren and um, Daniel Berg came from, and the, the spiritual descendants of those that kicked them out when they got a little too, you know, Pentecostal. And Jerry Shevlin stood up in front of those leaders and he says, I just want to tell you that in light of the scriptures that say that we are to be one and we're to bear with one another in gentleness and patience and long-suffering, he says, I, I, I repent to you of the sins of our fathers and our sins. I apologize for every time I've looked down upon you, especially with the superior attitude that we often have is we're people of the word and you're people of emotion. And I repent of that. We see the evidence of a great and mighty work of God. And we don't have to be the same, but God has called us to a behavior of humility towards one another. And it begins with us. I was never more proud in my whole life. It's the way of, it's the way of Jesus. It's what people are longing to see in us. This isn't something just to go home and apply to your life. This is, this is really about our future. Who are we going to be? I want and I pray that the culture of humility, the culture of Jesus, will be lived out among us in such a way that a watching world truly responds. And if God can do this in Brazil, why not here? Why not God touch our nation? Why not God affect millions of people? If we would simply just say yes to him unreservedly, submitting ourselves fully to God, resisting that pride from the evil one, drawing near to God with all of our hearts, seeking him like never before, making amends and restitution, cleaning up the messes of the past. I think God's going to do something really great in our lives and before our lives together. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you just let this cook and settle inside of us. Make us uh, constructively discontent today. And um, do something in our hearts. Make us a people of humility. Now, Father, I pray for the person who has yet to truly surrender their life to Christ. And you know exactly who you are. My words have been affecting you this morning. It's really the voice of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you an opportunity to say yes to Christ today. Unreservedly, unreservedly, yes. A submission of your life to the will and to the, to the hand of God by his son Jesus. Prayer goes like this. Jesus Christ, take control of my life. You are God and I am not. I know that I'm a sinner. I'm ready to let you direct me. You can have my whole life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And if that's you, you say, yes, God, that's my prayer. That's my prayer. Father, fill that person that prayed that prayer with your love in a mighty way. Give them that 
now moment, the, the infilling of your spirit. May they never recover from it. And uh, may we as a church not recover uh, from today either. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.